I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And this was a tough recording session for me for a few reasons. With all of the tension and strife around the topic of race this year, I wanted to explore and have a guest properly demolish a hypothetical. What if America were split into racialized ethnostates? A quote, white country and a quote, black one. Is it a good idea? Would we be better off? And I can feel my skin trying to crawl off my bones as I speak. But I felt this was an important question to confront, and I knew that I needed the right guest with the knowledge and experience to authoritatively dismantle my questions. With that being said, a few things are unique about this episode. Number one, with some noted exceptions, I am asking our guest questions not as myself, but as a hypothetical person curious about the value of a potential ethnostate. This was not a character I was able to consistently embody, as you'll find out. Number two, Los Angeles was experiencing a historic heat wave and brownouts the weekend this episode was recorded. Number three, there are some technical glitches in the audio that I believe are connected to the heat wave. I've left these errors in as editing them out would have required changing the content of the guest's responses. And number four, right before we started recording, I told the guest I really needed him to, quote, kick my ass with his responses. And I believe he did just that. Wilford Riley is an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He's written columns on race and identity for publications that include USA Today, Spiked Magazine, Commentary, and Quillette, and is the author of several books, including Hate Crime Hoax, An Investigation into False Hate Crime Allegations, and most recently, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. He's currently working on a new project entitled Alt-Wrongs, an American Case Against Racial Nationalism, which segs rather nicely into today's conversation. Will, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me. Will, one of the reasons I invited you onto this podcast is because you've made a reputation of debunking a lot of misinformation around topics like race, culture, and identity that comes from both the right and the left. And you're unafraid of touching what many would call third rail topics like crime rates or IQ scores, marriage rates, and a handful of other topics that would get meeker men <laughs> canceled perhaps 20 times over. Simply following your Twitter feed oftentimes feels like watching a man wrestling with a starved alligator. But before we dive into the meat of our discussion, can you tell us a little bit about your personal background and what specifically drew you to talking about topics that most people figure, often for reasons of self-preservation, are simply better avoided altogether? Sure. Um, my name is Wilfred Riley, and I'm an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, one of the um, great historically black colleges located in the Kentucky capital of Frankfurt. I mean, by background, I grew up in Chicago. Uh, I was born in the city itself, lived in uh, pre-gentrification Wicker Park on the north side for quite a while, moved to nearby Aurora, East Aurora specifically. Educational background, pretty much the same, urban Midwestern. I went to Southern Illinois University, University of Illinois for law school. I went on to get a PhD at uh, SIU. And as you mentioned, the reason I'm attracting some media attention currently is that one of the things I trained in at SIU was quantitative methods. 
And I became very interested in how, if you analyze them using any decent modern technique, linear regression, log lin, logit, how many of these claims, even just cross tabulations and breakdowns by state, for example, how many of these claims on left and hard right were actually true? So for example, uh, my dissertation looks at a claim made by Andrew Hacker in a very famous book, Two Nations. Uh, he surveyed a bunch of his students who happened to be white guys in Queens, but we'll leave that aside for the minute, and found out that the average white person would have to be paid $50 million to become black. And this, along with an essay like Peggy McIntosh, has really become the baseline of kind of white privilege theory. Uh, I was curious as to whether that does represent what it's alleged to, the value of whiteness in a racist society or white racism itself. And I gave a large group of primarily middle-class Black, Asian, and Hispanic individuals pretty much the same question. Like, if would you ever consider changing your race? And if so, what's an amount of money? What's an amount of value that you'd put on that? And I found that in general, the minority kids demanded more than the whites had. It was about $80 million. Now, you have, to, you have to adjust for inflation, but this kind of got me interested in the realities underlying some of the things that we often hear in this kind of black guy and Republican guy yell at each other television format. Uh, for example, are there a very large number of unarmed black men killed police? Uh, is there a great deal of interracial crime? And if so, is that primarily directed against black people by whites? Do the gaps that we constantly hear about in, for example, income um, that are used as evidence of, quote unquote, systemic racism, do they survive once you adjust for the obvious things that no one in left wing social science seems to uh, age, region of the country, standardized test scores, that kind of thing? So one of my interests, as I say on my CV and on Amazon, the little author bio is looking at sacred cow theories and seeing how well they do against reality. And that's drawn a bit of attention. And I often find that the real empirical truth is very different from what the mass media, for example, tells us. And I think that that is perfectly suited for the rather fraught discussion we'll be having today. And I think uh, perfectly said. That takes us to 2016. In 2016, you invited white nationalist Jared Taylor to your university, which, as you noted, I believe is an HBCU founded in 1886 mm -hmm. uh, to debate the merits of diversity. Video of this exchange is available on YouTube. But what prompted you to extend that invitation to him? Well, I thought, as I recall, actually, he originally invited me. It's entirely possible that um, I challenged him. But as I recall, he challenged me to a debate. This is when the book version of my dissertation had been published by scholars. Um, it had attracted some interest, and I'd made some pretty anti-alt-right points uh, in that piece of writing. But um, whatever, whoever initiated, the reason I accepted was that I thought that at this point in time, the sort of hereditarian racialist viewpoints were having an impact on a lot of young men, particularly white young men, without being coherently challenged. So, I mean, at this point in history, this is prior to the censoring of Et Nero. I mean, you had Jared Taylor running American Renaissance. You had John Derbyshire and Peter Bremelow over there at V-Dare. These are both Alexa top 10,000 sites. I wouldn't put him in quite the same group, but you had Stefan Molyneux. Um, you had all of this hereditarian stuff on Twitter. A lot of people seem to be arguing that diverse societies just don't work and that there are these major genetic gaps between, say, blacks and whites as versus cultural ones, which most people acknowledge. And I thought it would be interesting to actually have a culturalist with a PhD 
pull someone in and debate some of these things and make points like, well, actually, diverse societies have existed since ancient Rome. I mean, you can look at the Alexandrian Empire, the Abbasid Caliphate, the British Empire, modern India, modern Brazil, the EU taken as a whole. I didn't feel people were making that kind of political science point against the alt-right. What you very often heard was some guy making unintelligent but somewhat racist hereditarian argument, and then someone countering him by screaming, go home, Nazi. And my impression was that that was turning a lot of people toward this kind of stuff. And I wanted, there were some flair points in the debate. I brought a bunch of people on stage to show what a diverse list of honor students looks like and so on. But I basically wanted to use actual empirical facts to challenge the alt-right perspective. I mean, one of the things I pointed out during the debate is that IQ, which the alt-right obsesses over, is not a stable variable for either individuals or groups. I mean, if you look at the average IQ score for Irishmen in the USA, and I said this specifically, that's gone from 77 during World War I to 102 today, according to the OG Thomas Sowell. So, I mean, I, I wanted to see if there was a response to this kind of thing. And in general, uh, Taylor is an excellent debater, but in general, I haven't heard one from the alt-right. Uh, in, in general, if you're engaging alt-writers on, say, Twitter or something like that, and you say... Well, look, I mean, the black IQ, according to Dickens and Flynn, is now over 92. The Asian IQ is 105. I mean, these are all within the same band as the white IQ. Now, what do you say? The response will just be basically, well, I still don't like all these minorities. Um, so I, I don't know how much there is there. I think that the, the empirical arguments are a cover for racism, basically. But I wanted to challenge the empirical arguments. And that, that's what happened with that debate. And yeah, that's up on YouTube. It's been viewed something like 200,000 times. And I encourage people to go take a look at it. Yeah, I, I don't personally find Taylor's arguments uh, very convincing. And they feel, and I think you, you sort of touched on this just now, they feel almost religious in nature in that you can kind of throw anything empirical at folks like Taylor. And they, they kind of just like, uh, like the matrix, just dodge bullets and bullet time as if none of those empirical points matter. Though his arguments are not very convincing to me, I feel like in, if they're convincing to anyone, they're almost convincing to people who already have some amount of buy-in, right? I am obviously as the as the son of you know an Armenian mother and a you know white European father. I I personally don't feel like I would probably be be very welcome or very comfortable in the in the nation that Jared Taylor wants to form. Which kind of leads me to I need to articulate sort of what I personally believe um, before we start this conversation. So if you'll allow me, I need a little bit of runway uh, since I will be the person kind of articulating some arguments and some suppositions that I look forward to you knocking down. Okay. As I said, my mother's side of the family is Armenian, um, came over here around 1920, escaping, uh, escaping the genocide. Um, I have brown and olive skinned relatives who, like I said, would be, would be largely unwelcome, uh, probably at uh, Jared Taylor's dinner parties. I believe diverse peoples can come together under united and shared values. And I think that this is probably best and most easily exemplified in places like the military or church, where people from many different backgrounds find common identity and a shared purpose. But I also recognize that human beings are on some level inherently tribal in some sort of way and will always find ways to separate and exclude one another for whatever the reasons of that particular era or particular country. It, it seems to vary place to place, time to time. And so I worry that in our current moment and movement to recognize very real racial injustice, we risk sparking a new kind of racial essentialism and tribalism, which I think is the very thing we must fight against if we ever hope to unite a society as diverse as our own. I have to be clear. I personally believe that race as we understand it is a fiction. 
a story we've told ourselves and others for hundreds of years that has benefited some and massively, massively harmed others. And my belief is that we must go further to continue to dissolve the artificial barriers between racial groups as we did, as you mentioned, with the Italians, the Irish, and the Armenians, or the Chinese, the Koreans, and the Japanese, and so on. So during our conversation, I am going to try and, quote, do justice to a topic that I don't actually believe really deserves any kind of justice. I'm going to attempt to steel man racial nationalism from, from two different points of view. Okay. First, from the point of view of a hypothetical white American who believes in and supports the idea of a diverse America, but due to perhaps mainstream and social media narratives and perhaps recent encounter or two with critical race theory via either Robin D'Angelo's white fragility or some other source, is beginning to entertain in the dark corners of their mind the occasional fantasy of either escape or relief. And second, the perspective that I am honestly more sympathetic to, the idea of a black nation state, a country carved out for black Americans who willingly wish to separate themselves from a nation that has historically done them grave and some would argue irreparable harm. With that being said, I would like to say first that before we get into it, I believe that your recent book, Taboo, is one of the best salves that I've come across for our rather broken discourse around race. And so because you do such a great job in that book, setting up and knocking down myths around race and conflict with empirical evidence, there are some suppositions I'm going to put forward that are paraphrased from that book, along with originals that I've cobbled together from recent headlines. I believe that the most pressing threat to a cohesive, diverse society is the narrative that is presented in, in our media, uh, more than the reality of the facts on the ground. So that being said, Will, you've likely seen the same headlines and videos I have. White people are being accosted in restaurants and on park benches to raise their fists in solidarity or be shamed online, told that now is not the time for them to speak, but also that their silence equals complicity. And black people are being shot in the streets, being under and over policed, profiled and harassed by the very government they pay to protect them. Riots in the streets of major American cities happen nearly every night. As of this recording, over 30 people are dead as a result of these riots, which have been ongoing since the death of George Floyd quote-unquote, white America has a long and storied history of oppressing and othering black America. And yet, many white Americans today may feel unduly attacked for harms, might I note real, lasting harms, that they personally did not cause. So, is it time to split up? Should we carve the United States into a few racial nations, say, a black one and a white one, and I imagine the one that you and I would both prefer if forced, uh, a third option for the fools who wish to live in a racially diverse society? Uh, no. I could almost give the Tom Soul answer there where I just say no and chuckle. Uh, no, I, I think that's an absurd idea. And it, you can approach this from a couple of different uh, pathways. First, all of human society is, all possible human societies are imperfect. This, in fact, is one of the great themes of human literature, whether you go to the Greek tragedies or whether, for that matter, you read, I believe it's King Elrond's The Doom of Men speech in The Lord of the Rings, or whether you look at the Bible, man is born unto trouble as sparks fly upward, the idea being that we were a predator species with strong sexual taste that couldn't even make it in Eden. So any place that you live in is going to be imperfect. With that said, the United States is probably the best country in the world, at least in our size class. I mean, get out of here, Norway and Brunei and so on. We are the world's most militarily powerful society. We are the world's richest society on a per capita basis, again, in our weight class, far ahead of major power player peers like China, India, Russia. 
We're one of the least racist societies in the world. If you look at actual feeling thermometers measuring how whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and so on feel about each other. So no, if we're failing, who's succeeding would kind of be the question. So I mean, at the most basic level, no. The world's most powerful country, the Rome of the moment, shouldn't destroy ourselves and break up into a series of small republics with names like the nation of you and me, and I'm not sure about me. Um, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't see how anyone could seriously support that. Now, I'll get into two kind of sub points about this. First of all, a great deal of what's presented in the media that makes people think that separation might be the only option is wildly, wildly non-representative. So this is actually uh, discussed in chapter one of my book, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. But the total number of people killed that were legitimately innocent, legitimately unarmed by American Leo's police is tiny. Um, If you look at the Washington Post database, The Counted, which is the gold standard here, and this is not a conservative publication, the total number of unarmed black men shot by law enforcement officers in 2019 was 14. This year, it's nine. Um, Actually, we find that Hispanics, and if you go county by county, this would basically be poor whites, but white guys are more likely, at least in raw terms, to be shot by the police than African-Americans. But those numbers are tiny, too. I mean, if you look at 2019, uh, that number was around 60. Uh, 55, it's 62, I believe. You throw in some marginal cases around the meaning of the term unarmed. So you're literally talking in a typical year about 10 black guys and maybe 50 white and Hispanic guys, 60 people combined. That's the total number of unarmed victims of police shooting. We think this is an epidemic because all of these cases, or many of these cases and all of the black cases, are presented to us by mainstream media. And this problem, the if it bleeds, it leads focus of 24-hour cable news, of social media, actually is one of the major issues in our society, whereas interracial violence is not. Um, The videos of the awful George Floyd killing or of the Jacob Blake uh, fight with the cops and then shooting, he was shot in the back. Those play literally thousands of times on new media or on edgy cable. But that doesn't change the fact that they're all videos of the same 15 encounters. So, no, I don't think if you unpack this, there's a substantial body of evidence implying that the USA is such a dangerous country that we can't make it as a nation. We're literally the richest, most powerful country in the world and one of the 20 happiest. So, no, we do not need to break up into ethnos states. That's kind of the moral argument or the, the data-based logical argument. There's also a practical argument, which is that although we often hear that cities are a little too segregated and so on, we live amongst one another. I mean, if you look at Cleveland, I believe the city's a little under 50% black, a little over 40% white, more than 10% Hispanic. Many of these people are in loving interracial marriages. That's a region of the Midwest with very low levels of active racism. So what are you going to do if we move to an ethnostate society? Are all of the black folks in Cleveland going to sell their houses and move to Alabama, which has been renamed Liberty or some such? Are the whites going to move to, you know, Viking Hame on the West Coast, perhaps in Washington? And what about the interracial couples? You posited a diverse third state, but I don't think Taylor does. So, I mean, in reality, this is a pretty nonsensical idea. I mean, short of civil war, short of collapse, major nations don't just decide to destroy themselves. Um, The few examples where something like that has been done almost all turned out disastrously. I mean, if you look at many of the former uh, Soviet republics, and I'm I'm not praising communism here, but things have gotten substantially worse for them since the collapse of the USSR. And the USSR is by no means as 
moral, as enlightened a country as the USA. But I mean, I think most people would prefer to have lived in, you know, Moscow governed Russia than in Kazakhstan, Moldova, so on down the line. So no, I, I don't think there's any logical or moral or practical argument that we should separate the USA into a series of small white and black and Asian and so on countries. That no, that that doesn't that doesn't logically arise from the data as a conclusion. To leapfrog off what you just said, though, we see people self-segregate all the time. Um, immigrant populations being the most obvious example, right? And perhaps because of our relatively high, at least historically speaking, immigration rates, we've seen communities go from launching pads to perhaps enclaves where they continue to replenish themselves and act as almost communities within communities. So wouldn't a, you know, an ethnostate merely be an organic extension of what people of all stripes already do in our society? Well, I think that alt writers and hoteps love that argument because there is a certain natural instinctive level of in-group bias among healthy people. So at first glance, it sounds at least half right. The problem with that is that there's also what I believe Amy Chua called the mercantile urge. There's an urge to go out, trade with, marry into other groups of people. In an ethnostate, you can only do the first of those. So, I mean, in the USA, sure, people do sometimes self-segregate at the level of the average high school student sits at a lunch table that's 70 percent members of his race and so on. But at the same time, roughly one marriage in four or five is interracial. Um, my partner and I are going out for a nice dinner tonight. And I think we'll probably pick Indian. If not, it'll be Sichuan Chinese. So I, I certainly think that I, I mean, I live in a middle class, white and black pro-American neighborhood. And I like that because that's my background. It's nice to be able to go home there and get some sense of comfort. But at the same time, if I went to a business conference or if I went out into the dining scene for a night, uh, really anything along those lines, I would absolutely hate to see only middle class black guys represented. So no, I think that a diverse society where people can go home to a Chinese neighborhood if they want to is in fact probably the ideal. Um, that is the best way to combine those two natural human instincts. It's also worth noting that, I mean, when people talk about, you know, the cities are segregated and so on, that is only in relative terms compared to an American ideal. I mean, I think it would be very difficult to find outside of the million dollar homes range a quote-unquote white neighborhood that wasn't at least 10% East Asian, South Asian, middle-class African-American, Jewish, depending on how you want to count that group, so on. So, no, I don't think the fact that people sometimes prefer to associate with people of their own race or class means that we should separate into a one-race, one-class society. Men prefer to associate with men most of the time, but I would certainly not want to live in a city with no women. <laughs> I mean, I, Neither would I. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think most people. And breaking character here for a moment, I, I spent two weeks in in Sweden years uh, some years back uh, for work, and I will say that that spending even a couple weeks, and it, it was a gr beautiful country, but spending only a couple weeks in a relatively homogenous society made me miss America more than I ever thought I would. But back to the topic at hand, the National Museum of African American History and Culture recently said in a graphic on their website um, that was taken down after some protestations. They said that independence and autonomy, the nuclear family, objective, rational, linear thinking, respect for authority, and delayed gratification are all examples of whiteness. The New York City Department of Education defined perfectionism, worship of the written word, individualism, and objectivity as symbols of, quote, white supremacy culture. So 
why shouldn't white parents who want the best possible education and highest standards of excellence for their children segregate themselves away to communities where these standards can be administered and celebrated without fear of those ideals being called racist? I mean, I think that the obvious answer to that is that, in fact, only a racist would associate something like educational performance with whiteness. I mean, so as usual, I'll make an empirical point than an ethical point. Empirically, an entire range of groups, including, again, East Asians, South Asians, uh, individual black groups like Nigerians and some West Indians, Jews, so on, beat whites academically. So the idea that you would need to live in a city with no Asian kids or West Indian or just preppy black American kids or Jewish kids in order to achieve educational excellence is nonsensical because empirically group B that I just mentioned does better than group A. Um, So not only does that not make sense in the context of the actual facts on the ground, I think that the deeper point there is that the claim that something like punctuality is a sign of whiteness is an extraordinary example of what's been called the soft racism of low expectations. Um, I can tell you I'm a black businessman. And if I again went into the private sector, I would expect my black and my white employees to show up on time or five minutes before every workday. Um, And I guarantee you that every one of the many Asian, Nigerian, et cetera, guys that owns a large company in the USA has that rule. If you're a vice president at Johnson Publications, I mean, you're in that glittering Chicago office building when the workday starts. So level one, I think quite a few groups have shown they can do this quite as well as whites. And at the second level of analysis, I think the claim that there's anything white in the first place about doing a good job or what do you say, punctuality, perfectionism. I mean, that is someone who implicitly believes whites are superior to other people. It would be impossible. And this may be a somewhat male answer or somewhat upper middle class answer, but it would be impossible for most people I know to respect someone who is consistently late, turned in terrible work, couldn't defend themselves physically or in an argument. I mean, that... If this is the impression that people have at some level of blacks, we don't need to dumb down society to accommodate the minority of black people who think this way. We need to look at why these white guys think that way and, quote unquote, reeducate because that that's just classic racism flipped on its head. Why do you think that this thinking, this this supposedly anti-racist thinking is because I completely agree with you. I mean, you could you could literally you could blindfold someone and read some of these these suppositions to someone and they could easily put it in the mouth of someone from the alt-right. And yet it seems to be ascendant in certain corners of anti-racism training, anti-racism theory. Why do you feel that this is gaining traction? Why do you think it's even holding sway with anyone? That's an interesting question. I mean, so first of all, in, in terms of the second point you made there, I absolutely agree that it is almost impossible to tell many statements made in critical race theory from many statements made by alt writers. And I mean, some of the funnier kind of intellectual dark web Twitter accounts will point this out. I mean, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose have a running game called Woke or Racist, where You'll read a comment like, we must understand that athletic superiority is an element of black culture, but African-Americans simply don't display the same levels of punctuality and educational performance as whites. And then you have to ask whether, you know, Jared Taylor said that or, you know, the coach of the South African Olympic team on the one hand or two, some painfully woke person on the other hand. I mean, a, a new variation on this is the idea that having interracial sex is fetishizing the other race so you never should. I mean, that that to me is one of the most bizarre things I've ever heard. Like, if you enjoy having loving sex with people of a different race, it's because you're a racist. So, 
I mean, this a lot of this stuff really is off the rails. Why do I think that it is becoming popular? I think there's a culture of extreme excuse making on the left. Um, if you read uh, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, one of the things that he says is that any gap between two groups has to represent racism. And he gives sort of this false duality here. There are only two options when you see a gap in performance on, for example, the SAT. Option one is that the underperforming group is deeply, he means genetically, inferior. And option two is that there's some kind of prejudice contained in the metric. We've got to winkle out the hidden bigotry of that test. Now, obviously, there's also an option three, which is Tom Soul said this 40 years ago, which is that changeable cultural and situational variables predict what we're seeing. So, for example, if you adjust for things like father present, study time, whether you live in the north or the south, huge chunks of that gap are just going to vanish. That's what that's what's most relevant to me. But if you follow Kendi's model, I suppose you would think that any treatment of people differently on the basis of cultural characteristics is racist. So therefore, if black people right now tend to be a bit less prone to be there on time, this is referred to in the black community jokingly as colored people's time, criticizing that is racist. We've got to throw out the standard of timeliness. And again, I think that's absolutely nonsensical. In reality, that's one of the cultural variables in the third option model that predict poor performance. I think what we need to do is train black people to show up on time, just like it would probably be useful to get a lot of white Americans out there on the track or the basketball court a little more often uh, and improve their performance there. I think that if a so in a sense, I think if a group is underperforming at something, that doesn't mean the thing they're underperforming at is racist. And it doesn't mean their performance is genetic and can't be changed. What it means is that they need more training in the thing they're underperforming at. Charter schools that give intensive math education to poor black kids produce the best math students in their states, black and white, almost invariably. That's what we need to focus on. We don't need to say nonsense like math is racist. If I wanted to get hotep for a minute, I'd point out that blacks, or at least Africans, arguably invented math. I mean, unless you want to go into the Sumerians and their accomplishments, I mean, you'd have to really credit Egypt and even Nubia with a lot of the things that we think of as basic principles of mathematics, at least in terms of building construction. I mean, people joke about the pyramids and we was kings and so on. But the fact remains that African kings actually did put up those structures. They didn't do so by guesswork and counting on their fingers. Uh, the numbers we use are known as Arabic numerals. The white equivalent, the Roman numerals, was a bit too clunky. We put it aside for this alternate system designed by sort of light brown people. So there's, there's no, no one group has dominion over mathematics. Whites certainly have a great number of mathematical accomplishments to their credit. But again, if whites or blacks are temporarily doing worse at math, you train the group that's doing worse at math, you don't eliminate math. And you certainly don't pretend that math is a tool of white supremacy or something like that. Now you're getting into nonsense stacked on nonsense. Yeah, one of the things, before I get back to the steel manning, one of the, one of the things that you mentioned about uh, Kendi's theories, and I think you can say the same thing about D'Angelo, is they're non-falsifiable. It reminds me a bit of uh, Freud, right? Where, you know, he had this idea that uh, um, a man always wants to sleep with a woman who looks like his mother, right? And so if a man would come in with a wife who resembled his mother, he could say, ah, this is an example of, uh, of my theory proving itself out. Hmm. And then if a man showed up with a woman who looked nothing like his mother, he could say, ah, he is so afraid of marrying a woman or being with a woman who looks like his mother, he has run as far in the opposite direction as he possibly can. And so it, it, it creates this, this like cyclical feedback loop where 
anything you could possibly observe in society confirms the theory that you've already told yourself is true, which I think you excellently stated just now. Yeah, I actually, I'm a Popperian when it comes to my understanding of science. I think that if something's not falsifiable, it's not science. And a great deal of harm has been done, in fact, by specifically Freud, Marx, some of the crits we're discussing in race theory, who say things that sound very tempting, but that literally can't be disproven. So you can keep saying the thing over and over and over again, even if it's always only produce the worst imaginable results and just claim, well, you didn't read me correctly, or that wasn't true communism, or there were, there were no true Scotsmen involved in that particular project. So, I mean, I, I tend to be skeptical of this kind of stuff. And that, again, gets back to the root of a lot of my research, which is using just sort of boring empirical methods like logistic regression, stuff you see in accounting analyses, to check and see whether this stuff is true. I mean, there are multiple scales of privilege. There's a good one that I believe was designed by Yale students that led the BuzzFeed website for something like a month. And you can just see the scores people get on them and then calculate the effect on those scores of, you know, race with class adjusted for and class with race adjusted for and so on. And at least in sort of the small in student samples where I've done this, I mean, class has 10 times the effect of race. There's no evidence that there's a unique white privilege that overrides class privilege and sex privilege and the privilege of being straight or the privilege of being smart and good looking and fit for that matter. So I think often when you take the empirical techniques to this stuff to the extent you can, you find that it's just gibberish. One, it's unfalsifiable. And two, when you actually manage to track down a testable theorem within it, that theorem is almost always false. I mean, to give an example, Robin D'Angelo says white people are the most fragile of racial groups. They can't take criticism because white people are never criticized on the basis of race. Now, if you were to test this just by looking at the number of Google articles on the first 20 pages of results criticizing whites and then blacks, you know, crude but effective method, or simply asking white people as versus black people how often they hear racial insults like white boy and the N-word on a ball court, what you find is that that's empirically fantastically false. White people take slightly more racial criticism than black people do. Uh, it's been substantially more the past couple of years. So, I mean, again, it, I don't really think that there's much of a place in science for theories you can't test. And on those rare occasions when someone really sits down for a week and works out a test, which I've done on a few occasions, they're generally wrong. Yeah, I remember the first time I read um, Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And I remember reading through it and just kind of being blown away at the kind of empirical data that you're mentioning. And I remember thinking, I wish that I could have learned this in school. Why wasn't I hearing this perspective before? And I would say that anyone who wants to get a more holistic view, like the one you're discussing, if you're going to read Baldwin, I think you also need to read Soul in order to get a more holistic view of, of what causes the disparities that you're mentioning. Because I think that when we look at it through a univariate lens and assume that the only factor that creates these disparities is racism, which of course plays some part. You can't honestly look at the history of America and not assume that racism has played a rather outsized role, at least until recently, and echoes probably even into today. But it does seem like so much of our conversation today uh, only looks at disparities through a single lens. Yeah, and it's worth noting. I don't, I don't really disagree with that. But in terms of, I mean, the defining of America's history by racism, it's worth noting the USA didn't begin in 1619. Um, at that time, there were, I believe, 54 white or black old worlders on the continent, unless you're counting people in the Spanish possessions. 
Um, it began in 1776, and we had a system of chattel slavery largely confined to the South until 1865, which is around 90 years. Um, after that point, I mean, obviously, the Jim Crow segregation, so on. So race remained part of the national praxis. But at the same time, I mean, we desegregated, at least in de jure terms, in 1954. Most of the North had been integrated for substantially longer, by the way, outside of residential living. Um, we passed the Civil Rights Act, which makes most discrimination literally illegal by law in 1964. You can't even operate a restaurant that won't serve whites or blacks. Since 1967, we've had substantial pro-minority affirmative action in place. That was the year of the Philadelphia plan targeting the construction trades and such throughout a giant city. So, I mean, to, to put that in context, I was born in 1981 and I'm almost 40. So I think when modern Americans criticize racial and sexual oppression, I mean, women, for example, not to switch lanes totally, but have had the right to vote since 1920. So we can look at our country's history and say, yes, that was horrific back when most nations were horrific. But in fact, I mean, affirmative action is, what would this be, 37, 57 years old, 53 years old? I mean, so I, I don't think necessarily we can automatically say when we see a disparity it's even logical to attribute that as a first option to racial discrimination. I think there are a lot of things you should look at there. Why would the group that's had some level of advantage for 53 years, at least in terms of college applications, Fortune 500 jobs, why would we expect them to generally be underperforming because of racism? When I started doing this research, that basic question, which an Indian American buddy of mine, uh, by the way, a Dravin, who's essentially black skinned, who's often mistaken for African American, that question that was asked to me really inspired some of those questions, like what happens to these income gaps if you just adjust for living in the South? What about test scores? So, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but I, I don't think it makes sense to look at a gap between men and women a hundred years after the vote was assigned, now that women make up the majority of the voting bloc and say, oh, must be sexism. Outside of a few elite blue collar fields, why, would, why on earth would that be the assumption? Wouldn't an estimation about income be that since women have babies and that happens three times in a lifetime, you might be looking at substantially fewer years of work. And that's generally what you find in the data. This doesn't discount the important five and six and seven percent impacts of racism and sexism. But when someone holds up a figure, a feminist friend recently told me women make 58 cents to the average man's dollar. And you, you very often hear either this figure or a slightly variant one of like 76 cents during, say, National Pay Day. We, we didn't have a brutal argument about it, but my immediate reaction, which she objected to, was does that include women that aren't working, that are housewives or home managers that control their family's entire financial budget? And of course it did. So obviously, if you compare the income of a male executive who's making $100,000 a year with the income of a housewife who's technically making nothing but controls at least that much money, you're going to find a gap between men and women. I don't think that the default position even today should be, well, that's sexism until we prove it's not. I think that's a, a wonderful point that I want to come back to towards the end of our conversation, because I, I want to get to the idea of a, a black nation state. A lot of the points that you've made, I think, disproving the idea that a, a white nation state would be either a good idea or rather one that would even benefit white people in the way that they think it might. I want to get to a concept that I am a little more sympathetic to. In his book, Between the World and Me, ta Coates wrote of his experience living and learning at an HBCU both the sense of deep belonging that he felt and the respite it provided from what he described as the white gaze. Quote, I was admitted to Howard University, but formed and shaped by the Mecca. These institutions are related, but not the same. Howard University is an institution of higher education concerned with the LSAT, magna cum laude, and phi beta kappa. 
The Mecca is a machine crafted to capture and concentrate the dark energy of all African peoples and inject it directly into the student body. The Mecca derives its power from the heritage of Howard University, which in Jim Crow days enjoyed a near monopoly on black talent. The history, the location, the alumni combined to create the Mecca, the crossroads of the black diaspora, end quote. And a close friend of mine, who is himself black, grew up in a predominantly white suburb in Colorado, and both he and his brother were often stopped by police for a usually ex post facto reason. He subsequently went to an HBCU as well for college, Morehouse, and I can't say that I blame him. I mean, obviously we're friends, and he has friends of all different races today, but for the black American who feels consistently and perhaps relentlessly othered, either through erroneous police stops, malicious or ignorant assumptions made by colleagues or coworkers and even friends, and a lack of holistic and consistent representation in media that goes beyond the two-dimensional tropes that we so often see displayed in entertainment, what do we say to them? Uh, why don't they deserve a nation that reproduces the safety, harmony, and belonging found at HBCUs? Well, because you don't get to treasonously leave the country for another country because you sometimes fight with your brothers. I mean, it, our quote-unquote redneck American could make every one of those arguments right down the wire, criticized for a Southern accent, violence from Black Americans versus against Black Americans. Those two groups often fight with honors about equal. That doesn't mean you can just take Alabama and leave, bro. I mean, so that's that's the simplest answer. You you don't necessarily get to leave the country. I mean, obviously, we should work on residual racism. Obviously, you can choose to live in a middle class black neighborhood if you want to, which, as I've mentioned, you know, I've often done and I enjoy. Uh, again, there are HBCUs and so on. But no. Uh, so actually, I'll, I'll answer your question with pra- sort of practical responses. Why wouldn't we give African-Americans their or our own country? The first problem would be that if we took the black population or, for that matter, the southern white post-Confederate population of the United States and put them all in one country composed of three or four states, that would very bluntly be a second or third world country compared to the USA. That's not because of the potential of those people. That's because you're taking a more working class population. You have less land. You have less room to grow crops so on down the line. I mean, you have less subsidies from wealthy enclaves in the USA like Silicon Valley. On average, it would be substantially worse for the average black person to grow up in an all-black country that didn't have any of the infrastructure of the United States and had to build that up again than it would be for the average black person to grow up in the USA and occasionally get stopped by the police. And I want to make two more points about this. We very frequently hear middle-class African-Americans and women and members of other groups describing their experiences in Lexington, Kentucky, or Cincinnati as though they were living in Bosnia during the war. I mean, I've been stopped by the police probably six times in my life, which is perhaps two more times that I would have been stopped had I been a white guy. The experiences were unpleasant, but they didn't make me want to leave the country. So, I mean, two points of analysis here. One, I'm very interested in the question of the extent to how much is the black perception of the USA as extraordinarily hostile, driven by media and by factors like critical race theory or disciplines like critical race theory, rather than by reality. To give an example of this, um, in one of my incoming freshman classes at KSU, I asked students to rate the hostility of the area. This may have been at SIU, actually. But I asked people to rate the hostility of the area in which they were living. I mean, how many times on a monthly basis did you get into, say, an argument, a scuffle or a potential fist fight? 
traffic altercation, whether that's a stop by the police or just a, a road rage incident. Uh, and the students marked these down. And the, the average number was around what I would have said myself was something like 12. White and black students had an almost identical number of such interactions. I believe the black kids were up by like 0.5, half of one. But the black students attributed almost half of them, as I recall, to racism. Um, so I think that when you are reading books describing the civil rights movement in virtually every class, when you are seeing these every single one of the 10 unarmed black men killed by police presented on the big screen and sort of these major media national television scenarios, you are very, very likely to think of the country as hostile. I don't think that the country as a middle class African-American is extraordinarily hostile. And I, I think I just provided some sort of at least quantitative support for that. And you actually see this in the data. I mean, you've seen views of American race relations decline dramatically from unbelievably the 1970s or the early 1990s through the Obama and Trump eras. So people today think that the USA is a more hostile place to African-Americans, and for that matter, to whites as well, than it was in, let's say, 1975. And that's fantastically unreal. If you look at the number of violent incidents between blacks and whites or recorded level of support on the part of both groups for interracial marriage or something like that, there is no evidence whatsoever of this. So point one, no, you don't get to leave the country because you sometimes have hostile encounters. But point two, I also think that the extent to which people believe they're constantly having hostile encounters is extraordinarily influenced by the media. And a final point I would make here is one of the things that I've consistently thought when I hear African-American students report on these real but low rates of discrimination is everybody has to suffer this to some extent. So, for example, uh, a collaborationist online shot me a piece from Pew saying that fully 8% of whites wouldn't vote for a well-qualified black presidential candidate from their own party. And, I mean, I thought that was disgraceful, and we talked about it as an example of surviving racism. But my immediate impression was that that same level of bias had to exist against members of many white groups. So I actually went looking for the full original data set. And it turned out this was exactly accurate. I mean, I believe it was 7% of people wouldn't vote for a Jew, 6% for a Catholic, 9% for any woman, 22% for a gay person, 37% for an Arab or other Muslim. So when people say these things, like I'm sometimes followed by the police if I'm black, or I have trouble getting on planes if I'm a Muslim man of fighting age, I get catcalled as a woman, as a white guy, I'm accused of being a bigot. I think the hidden secret is that if you break away from the tribalism, everybody experiences that level of prejudice. Again, African-Americans, perhaps 5% more or something like that. But no, I don't think that the level of ongoing prejudice in the United States, the level of ethnic conflict is so severe that we should let either blacks or Southern whites break away and set up a country that would be far poorer and far less full of opportunity than this country. I totally agree. I think that the point you made about how the media really warps the rates of police shootings or the rates of discrimination, though they exist, as you mentioned, I think that's what makes conversations like the one we're having so important. The stat that you mentioned about how race relations and people's views of race relations, rather, have declined dramatically since the 1970s is, I mean, it's, it's alarming. But you echo a study that was also done by Roland Fryer, I believe, who did research on police shootings and police uh, brutality and was surprised by the findings that he found. 
police, I believe, are either just as likely or even less likely to shoot a black suspect than a white suspect. But what he did find was that rates of overphysicality that the police would use with black or Hispanic suspects, that was higher. And so you could say that with a black ethnostate, let's say, that was policed and adjudicated entirely by fellow black people, that even if the crime rate remained the same, right, that they wouldn't be profiled for it. The police would have to use other methods. They'd have to more thinly slice their descriptors, right? Black people could walk freely among their fellow citizens knowing that they wouldn't be judged, right, by the quote unquote higher crime rate of their group because everyone in the nation would be of that group, right? I mean, first of all, I think there'd be far more police violence in an all-black ethno state because officers wouldn't fear allegations of racism. I mean, if you actually read that Friar piece, um, what he finds is that with all variables held constant, whites are 24% more likely to be shot than African-Americans. And I certainly don't think that, I don't think most officers are bigots, but I certainly don't think officers prefer blacks to whites by a full 25% margin. I think that there is a reluctance to shoot an African-American suspect because of primarily the process within your own department, but also the idea of perhaps crowds in the streets, perhaps you being fired, so on down the line. Um, You could argue that this in a way is good because it holds down the rate of police shootings of black people But I would argue that there are so few police shootings of black people, unarmed black people, that the overall effect of making officers police black neighborhoods less probably outweighs that slight gain in lives saved. If you look at crime rates in many inner city black areas. But that's an interesting side debate. I mean, the basic point is that police without that incentive not to fight members of the other kind of primary race would probably do so far more often. I mean, you're also talking about, and black officers tend to be quite as good as white ones in this society where we have a diverse applicant pool and we can pick all of the best applicants. But if you're looking at a society with about 10% the population, you're also not going to have as many people to select a qualified group of officers from. So, I mean, you'd probably have slightly worse officers with no racial constraints on their behavior. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see police shooting rates double. Uh, so, no, I, I don't think that makes a ton of sense. They're also, I mean, as as I just said, when I said, sure, we all agree that 8% of people not wanting to vote for a top tier black candidate is disgusting, but let's keep it real, it's 7% for Jews or whatever the case might be. I mean, I think it's important to not go into a sort of frenzied panic when you're looking at data at this level. So what Fryer found, yes, was that, I don't, I forget whether this was with everything adjusted for or not. But I believe uh, African-Americans were 16% more likely to hear harsh language during a stop, uh, 18% more likely to be cuffed peacefully, no, no abrasions, this didn't get up to the next level of violence, so on down the line. Um, and again, I don't think he adjusted for the behavior of the suspects. So I think both black and urban white men might be a little more likely to initiate, let's politely say, a verbal altercation with the officer than suburban guys. But let's say 10% overall harsher treatment for black people. Yeah, that's a form of racism we need to remedy. I don't deny that some racism exists. But again, is a 10% increase in the risk of a cop insulting you enough of a motivator to leave society? I feel like we're making people extraordinarily fragile. By taking the sort of incidents that occur in day-to-day life, I was heckled in the locker room, I was asked on a date by an unattractive male, I'm a young man, I was stopped by the police, 
And making these in the absence of real problems like you having to get drafted and go to war seem like life-ending apocalyptic issues. Uh, No, short version, I don't think going through the time and effort of setting up another country to reduce the rate of harsh police stops of black people by 9% is a logical thing to do. Do I favor one more diversity training session a year for officers? Maybe. But that's, that's a problem at that level. It's not a problem at the level of let's shift national borders. Before I get to our final two questions on this topic, I just want to touch on something that you said that I think is actually a really interesting point that I've never heard articulated before. Are you saying that because our society is more diverse, that actually plays a role in lowering the amount of police brutality or police shootings that you're saying that because officers interact with people different from them uh, in diverse settings, that they are less likely because they are cautious of the of the potential message that may come from that brutality or from that shooting, they're less likely to engage in it? Yeah, I mean, there's a substantial body of research that finds that judges give stiffer sentences to young men of their own race. I mean, you see this in Chicago where it's an old joke. You don't want to go before an Irish judge. If you're an Irish kid, you don't want to go before a black judge, a veteran black judge if you're a black guy. You know, some Italian judge was in the Marines if you're an Italian guy, because there's going to be no Hispanic, because there's going to be no sympathy for you. You're going to be seen as like the young punk All of those groups have been known to hang out on the corner from time to time. You know, the young punk that's out there in a big city, disturbing grandma's neighborhood, you know, give this kid a year. Whereas, in fact, a judge of a different background, this wasn't true during white-black tensions in the South, but it generally is now, is very often likely to give you a lighter sentence, not a harsher, more brutal sentence. That's not always true. It often is true. We also find that there's no difference between black, white, and Hispanic officers in terms of discharging a weapon in what are called realistic training scenarios. I don't remember the names of the studies offhand and try never to BS during these kind of interviews. But I mean, if you take three officers of three different races, all good, solid cops, and you put them in a situation where you have a black guy jump out from behind the simulated barrel with the kidnap victim or whatever, the black and Hispanic officers are usually a little more likely to shoot. So there's no evidence that when people encounter one another in a diverse society, their general reaction is rage and treating them much worse. There tends to be actually more of a distant politeness. Uh, A good example of this would be the extreme infrequency of interracial crime. So if you look at serious crimes like murder, I mean, 93% of those committed against blacks are committed by blacks. 86% of those committed against whites are committed by whites. So both black and white thugs actually pick the other side's people for victimization less often than they pick their own group. So yeah, what what a diverse society means is not constant ethnic conflict. It's this complex interplay of behaviors. And one of those is that people are less likely to attack people they don't feel they understand very well. I think that's a great point. Second to last steel man question. Black hospital patients. uh, This is a recent study receive lower quality of care and the black infant mortality rate is three times higher when the birth is overseen by a white doctor as opposed to a black doctor. This seems like another disparity that could be fixed in a unirracial nation. Um, I actually specifically looked at that study because the presentation of it on CNN was so dramatic. You're three times more likely to die as a black baby. What I actually found is that 99.7% of white babies and mothers survive childbirth with no complications whatsoever. Uh, If you're looking at black babies with white doctors, 99.2% of them, I believe, survive childbirth with no complications whatsoever. If you're looking at black babies with black doctors, it was 99.4% 
I'm rounding up, that survive childbirth with no complications whatsoever. Um, so essentially, the transition from a white doctor to a black doctor increased, decreased your risk of having a fatal outcome by 0.2%, one-fifth of 1%. That would mean in one in 500 cases, the race of the physician made a difference. The way you get to that 300% figure is that I guess you, you look first, you're not directly comparing the black and white doctors with the same kid. What you're doing is taking the 99.7% rate for white babies overall, and then the 99.2% rate for black babies overall, and you're saying that the additional 0.5% gap in the case of black kids means that 0.8% of their of our babies as opposed to 0.3% of white babies die and that is a roughly 300% advantage sorry if that's just a jumble of math but you have to do this kind of complex equation to come to that result the actual way that would be written is that there is a 0.2% increase in mortality between white and black physicians. And right now, by the way, that's because so many, most uh, black folks with an interest in grad school go into education or into business. So black physicians are actually a pretty self-selected, probably pretty solid group. Uh, and even there, the difference between them and the white physicians was 0.2%. So no, I, I don't think that that, on, that is the basis for a, the need to move into another nation. I also would say, by the way, that if you actually look at overall scores on the GRE, both blacks and whites do quite competently by this point, but it is simply not the case that if there was no competition from white physicians and you had 100% of your physicians as African-Americans rather than a small selected group, those would be better doctors. That's just not true. The test scores and residency marks and so on don't indicate that. Again, both are solid, but if anything, you'd see a slight drop off in quality. I, I think anyone who's familiar with affirmative action or standardized testing would have to say that. Um, in America, as it is right now, black docs are doing quite well. But again, you're talking about one-fifth of 1% when you're talking about these differences. Um, another point that I would make here is that woke people can argue literally anything is racist. So if you actually look at a lot of these studies on medical care, the major difference between blacks and whites came in terms of the prescription of painkillers, like opioids and codeine. We're bluntly considered to be sort of big athletes and warriors, and we're prescribed them less. But the actual impact of this has been that black people have not been devastated by the opiate epidemic. Only about 6% of heroin and opiate overdoses involve an African-American subject, male or female. So if you're saying it's racist that we're not given the poisonous drugs that are killing our white countrymen, and this is the, one of the major examples of discrepancy in medical care, that strikes me as an insane example of overreaching and calling everything racist. Um, now, I do think that there are a lot of real class issues that engage with race issues when you're talking about blacks or, for that matter, Southern whites. Like, it wouldn't surprise me at all that African-Americans get lower quality care if, on average, they're going to lower quality hospitals. We really need to improve urban hospitals in this country, especially those servicing black people. But that is a separate debate from is 0.2% a genocidal difference. And the media intentionally, consciously misrepresents stuff like this all the time. Yeah, this seems like a, a common theme in most of your answers that when we dig into the data, that it is either wholly misrepresented or it is like the case with the baby mortality rate. It's not critically explained to the person who's reading it. And even just the fact that you're, you're talking of a difference between 0.2% and 
and then it getting blown up to mean, I guess, technically true, three times the rate. It, it just seems so frustrating that that so much of our media is it just uh, it it bleeds it leads like you were saying earlier. Is that is that literally all that it is? Is that the media is is just looking at a way to get clicks and and put salacious headlines uh, in front of people on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, just to enrage them and get them to engage is 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 that literally why this um this misinformation seems to be getting into people's minds? I think that in a sentence there are two problems with the media. One is sensationalism. They they do find as a group, you know, they, but this is accurate. They do find as a group that fear sells. So, one of the first things that I tell students in an intro political science class where we're discussing media is that there's no correlation between what's presented in prime time on the media as threatening to humans and what actually kills people. You could apply this this principle to white on black crime, black on white crime, police shootings, animal attacks, plane crashes, child kidnapping, terrorism, any top 25 topic. The number one killer in the USA is cancer, and there are actually fascinating new technologies coming out on the market this year. Media doesn't discuss this. Uh, even the media's coverage of COVID, which is a real problem that people on the right should minimize less, but is focused on these wildly atypical cases, like high school cheerleader gets COVID-19, might die. The average victim of COVID-19 is 82. We could have probably halved our COVID-19 cases by essentially quarantining seniors early on and not doing things like sending COVID-positive seniors back into nursing homes. So any focus on COVID-19 that doesn't make that point over and over and over again is badly done. So problem one is sensationalism. Problem two is a left bias, if we're being honest. I mean, Pew Research found years back, I think it was 2004, that the combined percentage of conservatives and libertarians in the U.S. mainstream media was seven. Um, 93% of journalists identified as either liberals or as generally left-leaning moderates. And that certainly impacts what, what we see in coverage. I mean, just a very basic example of this, whether or not you think blacks are overrepresented, and we can have a debate about whether that's due to crime rate or racism, I'm always willing to have that debate. But the fact remains that 75% of the people shot by cops aren't black. They are Hispanic men. They are working class white men. There are people you would think would be quite as sympathetic. Recent immigrants from Asia or Mexico, hardworking guys. Those people receive on average maybe 10%, maybe 20% of MSM mass media coverage of police shootings. If you just Google well-known police shooting, I mean, my research associate, uh, Jane, did this. And she found that there were, I believe, 34 black cases, two Hispanic cases, and three white cases that had received national primary media coverage. So the media does lean left, and they can present data in this fashion. They can take 75% of the cases, and without ever saying, we're not going to cover these, give them the sort of small, localized headlines that result in them receiving 10% of the coverage. So two problems, sensationalism and bias. This does seem like a almost um, funhouse mirror version of what I think the media did a lot of in the past with black American stories in, in terms of crime, right? I remember the 90s, I was only a kid, but there were stories of super predators or the knockout game, I think around like 2007 or 2008, which were incredibly tiny instances of, you know, hyper localized crime that got like nonstop media attention over and over and over again to make it seem like it was some kind of pandemic of violence. And it seems like that same sort of single narrative is is now flipped on its head in the other direction. And it doesn't seem like either one, I mean, we certainly know that the one in the 90s and the early 2000s was, was incredibly unhealthy for our country. And it seems like this one is equally so. 
Yeah, I, t- I tend to agree. I mean, I wrote an article for commentary called No, There's No Coming Race War, where I talk about this. And on the right, I mean, they or we need to take responsibility for this. You do have a great deal of media content, uh, websites with names like The Problem with Black People or, you know, right. White Boy Hurt Again. I'm not, I'm not giving the actual um, link names there. But I mean, that are devoted entirely to videos of white guys losing fights with black guys, basically. Like every incident where a white guy gets jumped or a white guy starts a fight, but he loses or, you know, a white guy hit with a brick. I mean, these are all presented in technicolor. And yes, this ignores the fact that violent interracial crime between whites and blacks, whoever you blame for committing most of it, is 5% of crime in a typical year, 600,000 cases out of 12 million crimes. By the way, there are 350 million Americans. So yeah, I agree with that. I don't think sensationalism on the hard right is any better than sensationalism on the mainstream left. I will say that the difference is, unless you're talking about primetime coverage of white child kidnapping, which was a disgrace, most of the media coverage of the knockout game tends to be confined to sort of the internet, and it's designed as a response to the dishonesty of the mainstream media. The mainstream outlets that are presenting these primetime stories of these shootings of quote-unquote innocent black men are the leading national networks in the country, and they're allegedly unbiased. So I do think that's a bigger problem. And the spin is absolutely remarkable. Like the Jacob Blake case may be the best example I've ever seen of this. I mean, you know, seven shots may seem excessive. Uh, Certainly, I favor the investigation of those officers. They shouldn't just walk away scot-free from this. But the original presentation of the Jacob Blake story, if you remember Benjamin Crump's tweets and letter and so on, was that a good Samaritan had gone to a woman's house to help break up a fight between two women and had been attacked by these racist police and for no reason shot. It turns out that that is fantastic nonsense. I mean, there was an outstanding warrant against Jacob Blake for forcible, uh, although manual, rape. The person that called the police on Jacob Blake to bring him to that residence was the rape victim, or the alleged rape victim. Blake had trespassed there against her will, stolen her car keys, and was preparing to leave. Police show up. Blake fights them for three to four minutes. He has a cop in a headlock at one point, as I understand. Uh, They tase him. It doesn't work. He breaks loose. He goes to the vehicle, he opens the door, and according to at least some accounts, implies he's reaching for something. Cop shoots. By the way, Blake is hit three times, not seven. And they find a buoy, like a fighting knife, on the front seat of the car where Blake was going. By the way, I don't think that was Blake's car. Like, at least the impression I've gotten is that he may have been stealing the car. That was the keys that he was taking. So when you actually look at the reality there, we can still say, yeah, those officers maybe should be, you know, not officers, at least while this case is investigated. But that's very, very different from saying this is an innocent, wonderful, good Samaritan. And the narratives the media presents and activists present are literally often to that level of falsehood. I mean, Joe Biden met with Jacob Blake. So, I mean, I I think that this this is a major issue. And I think right now it's even more of an issue on the left than it is on the right. But bias sensationalism is bad from anybody. Yeah, I agree. On a previous episode of the show, I was speaking with John Wood Jr. about how it, it seems so difficult nowadays for Americans to even agree on what the reality of a news story is. I brought up this example with him, the, the Michael Brown shooting. Obama's Department of Justice saw that it was either at least a justified shoot or at least it wasn't uh, evidence of racial bias. And four years after that report comes out, you have uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren tweeting that Michael Brown was murdered and it was an example of racism. And I know a lot of people who who still believe that narrative. And I know even today uh, in regards to Kenosha and Jacob Blake, 
it seems so often and understandably so because people are busy. People have lives. They have families to take care of. They have work to go to. They see a headline. They see the, the first headline, the first report of an incident, and they take it as truth because understandably, why wouldn't they? It's from a, what they believe is a reputable media source. Um, and I think similar to what you said, you know, if these same videos and these same incidences are being bombarded at us on every channel every single day, it can create a very real impression that, that things are, you know, while not perfect, are, are worse than they in fact are. To get to our last steel manning question before um, we begin to wrap things up, one could say that the history, let's say, of white America's relationship with black America is one of theft, right? First, white America stole black America's labor. Then they stole black America's opportunities and wealth, both through legal rulings and legislation, through Jim Crow and redlining, through the destruction of Black Wall Street, to the destruction of the black family, through over-incarceration and modern slavery via the 13th Amendment. And perhaps most insidiously, they stole black American culture, and they either commodified it and labeled it as their own, like blues, rock and roll, you could take Elvis as an example, and hip-hop, or mocked it as less than from the time of minstrel shows to the appropriative and dismissive TikTok videos of today. And you could say that in a black nation, this theft, this appropriation, this dismissiveness, this mocking attitude would disappear, right? Um, I think that there are actually two different, well, there, I think there are three points there. First of all, again, everyone acknowledges, this is the American center right doesn't deny this, that U.S. history includes some horrible episodes, not just black slavery, but the wars of annihilation on both sides, by the way, between whites and the great native tribes, the oppression of women who had it worse than any white, black or native man in many, many cases, certainly within those racial groups through 1920 or beyond. Um, for that matter, the treatment of Irish indentured servants, Chinese railroad workers. I mean, yeah, no one denies that that is terrible. That's point one. And I think it's a bit ritual, but we should always say this when we're discussing these incidents. But that said, I think there are two specific and different responses to your point. Um, one is that over the past 53 years, white America or wealthy America has given a vast amount, far more than it has taken to black America, and these two are not the same things, poor America. I mean, if you look at the amount of money invested in, for example, the U.S. entitlement system, which goes primarily to whites, but within which African Americans are overrepresented, or the affirmative action and minority set-aside programs around the country, uh, enterprise zones, the great historically black colleges, I think, bluntly in a sentence, there is absolutely no claim that for the past half century, black people have financially given the USA in terms of, say, taxes more than we have received from the USA. This would also be true for the large majority of white groups, by the way. It would probably be true for the entire South. But no, I, I don't think that for a century, you could, you could really stretch this. The wealth of the USA has come from black people inputting money that's stolen from them by the government. I mean. The idea that we don't spend a lot of money on the poor or members of minority groups in the United States is absolutely ridiculous. I recently had cause to look up the budgets for inner city school districts like the one I attended in Illinois, and I was amazed to find the average amount per spent per kids roughly $14,000. So there is an enormous, and that is by no means justified by the local tax base, a great deal of that is state if not federal subsidies. So for a very lengthy period of time, the U.S. government has been pouring torrents of money into black neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, 
so on down the line with the intent of eliminating poverty to some extent. We've had multiple wars on poverty. And it's it's common to mock this on the right, but it's been reasonably successful. So no, I, I don't think you can simply say white Americans stole the labor of black people, so black people should receive a separate country. The obvious response to that is that at least in recent history, the government has given a massive, massive amount of money to black people and to working class Americans in general. And the obvious cynical but real point here is that in an all black country, that wouldn't exist. These massive subsidy programs wouldn't exist. Affirmative action wouldn't exist. HBCUs funded by the government wouldn't exist. You just have colleges in a smaller, poorer country that would have to struggle along as they do anywhere else in the world. So I, again, I don't think of that as a reasonable response. The second thing you mentioned, cultural appropriation, isn't theft at all. Um, I, again, I love and respect black people. I love my background. But there's no way to empirically argue that white people have taken more from black people than black people have from white people. At very least, it's close. But I mean, for example, the invention of computers primarily involved white engineers and designers. Um, basketball was invented by James A. Naismith. I mean, if you actually look at hip hop music and some of the things you cited in terms of TikTok, the sound engineer and the DJ and so on in every studio I've walked into seem to be white or Persian guys. So um, that that doesn't make sense. I mean, in a black country, you could say, well, there wouldn't be white kids in the country wearing black fashion. But I'm not sure how that would help any individual black person. The simple reality is that an all-black ethnostate, like an all-white southern ethnostate, would be a smaller, poorer little brother of the United States. The best thing for black Americans is to stay in America and demand our rights as Americans. If you're in the world's richest country, you don't, shouldn't logically attempt to leave that and set up shop in the southern part of Alabama. That doesn't make any sense. And by the way, in both the white and the black uh, ethnostate, people would rapidly find that white and black are both terms that consolidated when those two groups were fighting each other. That in reality, there are Germans and Italians and Irishmen and Englishmen and so on down the line, just as in reality, there are Nigerians and, you know, there's the light skin, dark skin conflict, quote unquote, um, West Indians. I mean, I don't think you would have a long lasting permanent peace in ethnostates made up of 30 different ethnic groups if you removed the rival force that kept those ethnic groups together. Frankly, I don't think the black state or the white southern state would do very well, at least in American terms. That's an interesting, huh, that's an interesting point. It is true that, that whiteness exists as a, as a construct because whiteness had to be created to form what we know as blackness, right? But you're saying that the harmony that now exists, let's say, between the Italians and the Irish or within black communities between Ghanaians and the Senegalese and the American descendants of slaves. You're saying that that piece, that supposed but obviously untrue homogeneity that exists between those groups would disappear if those groups were in racially homogenous states. That conflict would come about in different ways. That unity that is really sort of false within racial groups would disappear and people would find other reasons and other excuses to, to fight and bicker amongst themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's we've seen this over and over again in political science. I mean, I am a fan of diversity and consolidation when it comes to nation states. I'm a fan of the EU. I was a fan of the Roman Empire, although not of their entertainment practices. I like the USA. 
Um, there is this desire among people, which I don't think is particularly honorable when you think about it in depth, unless you're talking about something like residential living. But there is a desire to say, well, just let me alone. I want to live with my own kind, you know, this kind of thing. Um, and as a result of this, people tend to romanticize ethnostates. But what generally happens is that until you get down to a state that has no racial diversity, no ethnic diversity, and no religious diversity, which would be a very boring place to live, uh, ethnostates are no more peaceful than anywhere else. Um, if you look at the breakup of Russia and Yugoslavia, for example, I mean, Yugoslavia itself came from a much larger entity. I believe it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So, okay. They said, well, we're, we're at least going to take the South Slavs and we're going to go over here, become this nation, which is still a very powerful presence. But almost immediately, people began to ask, what do you mean, South Slav? You know, I'm a Croatian. People began to, and they, they did some of the idiotic balkanizing stuff that we're doing now, teaching different um, ethnic identities in the schools and so on. But very rapidly, you saw that ethno state where everyone was a South Slav and everyone looked almost identical, break into... What do you have now? I mean, it's Serbians, Croatians, Kosovars, Bosniaks, Montenegrins. I mean, all these groups fought bloody wars with one another, with the most violent countries in the world for a period of something like a decade. And now they're all these small, poor states, and they're still fighting. Um, I mean, I think it's South Ossetia is either in this region or in Georgia, but is now attempting to secede from the countries that broke away from the original entity. So. I mean, that I think, I don't know if that would happen in a black state. I don't know if that would happen in a white state, but it certainly is the common fate of ethnostates. I mean, within 50 or 60 years after their separation from the larger entity, which creates a precedent, you can separate from the larger entity if you want to, you see fractioning and balkanization within the smaller entity. I mean, had the Confederacy won the Civil War, for example, I wouldn't have at all been surprised to see Louisiana I'd have to check to see if that was a quote-unquote official Confederate state, but states like that fracture away from the full Confederate entity based on the idea, well, secession is now legal. I mean, the kingfish Huey Long, as governor of Louisiana, joked about doing that with the full-on United States. So fragmentation is always a tendency in models that look at how states form and collapse, and so is consolidation. And I prefer consolidation. I think that it makes far more sense to have the largest, most law-bound, richest possible national entity as long as people can get along with one another. I mean, I would rather live in, uh, yeah, I'd rather live in Yugoslavia than in the Kosovar borderlands. So I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what would happen in the USA, but I see no particular reason to believe that an ethno-state containing 13 ethnic groups would be particularly uh, peaceful for very long. Many of the groups that became white, by the way, uh, Irishmen and the English or Germans and Mattel Europeans are hereditary enemies of one another, Greeks and Turks and so on. So it's very, very at least possible that that could return. Reminds me of that old uh, chestnut. It's a joke that takes place in Ireland during the Troubles. And there's this Irishman in a car at the border of Northern Ireland, and he's stopped by a guard and the guard asks him, you know, what's your religion? Hmm. The man in the car says, well, actually, I'm, I'm an atheist. And the guard says, yeah, but what kind of atheist? It just goes to your point that it seems that human beings will always find ways to segregate and discriminate against each other and fight amongst themselves. I want to take a moment 
first to thank you for dispelling what I think are a lot of fictions that are being pushed by either bad actors or well-intentioned but misinformed actors. And I want to try and re-articulate what what you've said uh, during our conversation. And you let me know if I'm on base here. When accounting for a multitude of variations between populations, specifically in this instance of white and black, disparities in income and criminality and opportunity seem to largely disappear. Interracial crime and violence, vanishingly rare. Police killings of African-American men and women, and men and women of all stripes in America, also incredibly rare, though I think we can both agree that any preventable death is tragic. There have been injustices that have lasted for far too long uh, against Black Americans, and that the consequences of those injustices echo even in some small way today, but that in the year 2020, America is a much more racially tolerant and much more accepting society than it has ever been. And I think you said it stands as one of the most diverse and accepting societies in the world today. While we have room to improve and we'll always have room to improve, it seems like the strife and discontent and struggles that we see play out in the streets today are largely caused by a media narrative that seeks to sow discord among among our populace, among each other, um, when we are in fact more united and more similar to each other, black and white and brown, than we have ever been in our entire history. Am, am, I, am I on base here? Yeah. I mean, the, the large majority of that is pretty much entirely accurate. Yeah. I mean, the focus of my writing is analyzing these sort of hot button, interesting questions using real data. And real data does not show a wave of police killings or a wave of bloody interracial crimes. It does show that adjusting for things other than race closes most racial gaps and so on. So while we all certainly do want to do the best possible for minorities and indeed for all our countrymen, it's also important, and women, it's also important to criticize some of the things we frequently hear using that cold lens of reality. And as for ethnostates, I mean, my basic comment is the United States of America is one of the greatest nations in history. So if you believe that we are failing, you would believe that almost any country is failing. You are not looking at our actual alternatives like China and Britain and Russia and France. You're dreaming of utopia. And I don't think that's a particularly useful place from which to start a political conversation. I would agree. I personally, I would I would rather I would rather live in the United States than than China right now. So before we get to the final question that I put to, to every guest, where can people find you online and where can they read more of you? And are there any recommendations either of your own work or of work of people who you admire or read yourself that you'd like to toss out? Well, I'm, I'm pretty uh, easy to find. Just Google Wilfred Riley, uh, W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'm Will, W-I-L underscore duh, uh, underscore beast 630, Will to Beast. At, uh, on Twitter, I'm on Facebook and similar platforms. Uh, both Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, crept pretty close to the bestseller list, so you can find them on Amazon or pretty much anywhere else. And in terms of other people I'd recommend, I'd have to say a lot of the people in the quote-unquote intellectual dark web who are asking similar quantitative questions about economics and politics, race, and so on. I mean, Tom Sowell, obviously, uh, the OG, an emeritus member, if you will, but uh, I mean, Sam Harris from the left talking about religion, talking about atheism in the human brain. Uh, for that matter, Ben Shapiro from the right. I've read some of these books like How to Destroy America, and they're surprisingly solid from a scientific or a quant perspective. 
Um, Amy Chua, C-H-U-A, who wrote uh, the well-known book on tiger mothers and talks about, frankly, why some groups succeed in conventional terms and others don't. John McWhorter, Jason Riley. So it, it's pretty easy to just search, say, IDW and find a full-on list of these people and just look and see what, to some extent, actually is going on as commented on, as commented on by, you know, intelligent figures on left and right. So th that's what I'd recommend. I'd also, to some extent, just recommend going down to the library and looking up what you're interested in. There's very likely a book on it. If you want opinions on war or peace or race relations, you don't need to go on Twitter or Instagram. You can read what Colin Powell said in a bestseller 10 years ago. So the final question to wrap out our chat, one that I ask uh, every guest, uh, we're limited as individuals, I think, in all sorts of ways, right? We're limited in our time, uh, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy, right? Because even the most well-intentioned and caring person, they can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you'd like to take a moment and offer more empathy to? Offer more empathy to? I mean, I suppose in some broad sense, I mean, I apologize to everyone I've hurt at some point in my life. I mean, I've had an interesting and varied life and am uh, an imperfect, hyper-competitive, et cetera, person. But uh, no, not other than that statement about people I may have personally hurt, um, no, I'm not, I'm not actually a huge fan of empathy as opposed to caritas or kindness in politics. I mean, I think what I'd like to offer people as a writer and later on in life as a leader is not so much, you know, fellow feeling, but solutions that work. Um, my reaction to, for example, black or Southern white kids um, posting lower SAT scores than um, white or Northern kids, which we discussed earlier, is to some extent feeling a bit badly about this, but to a greater extent, wanting to give them the training to do better on the test. So no, I, I can't think of too many groups that I just want to extend more empathy toward. Um, as I said, individuals, I've, I've hurt myself, soldiers maybe, but I, no, I, I don't really have a long list of people that I feel I need to be more empathic toward. Um, I tend to feel that what I owe other people is nonviolence, and I regret on occasions when I haven't delivered that, but I don't necessarily, I, I can't think of too many people I want to do a great deal more for right now. Feel free to suggest some if you have a favorite charity or something. Thank you again, Will, for joining us. And thank you for kicking my ass <laughs> in regards to those questions and, and dispelling a lot of the fictions out there. It, it really has been a joy having you on today. All right. Loved being on. Thanks and have a good day. <laughs>